Good morning, church. Thank you, Rachel. Glad you're here this morning. Uh, if you are here for the first time, my name is Rusty. And I, does anyone know what that is? Because in second service last week, that, that thing dinged through the whole second service. And it's fine. If it, if, it, if it keeps dinging, that's fine. We all have cell phones. But I'm hearing it again in second service. And it just goes off every two minutes. There's like that ding. I thought it was our system, but maybe it's a phone. So if you hear that, and that might be yours, then um, thanks. Uh, all right, well, there's, there's a gentleman who would normally be here and has been here pretty much every Sunday for years and years and was here as recently as two Sundays ago, and he's not here anymore. He's with Jesus. His name is Dave Olfert, and uh, many of you will know Dave. Was he in his 90s? 93? Marilyn, Dave Jr., some of the family from out of town are visiting. Our condolences to you. If you didn't know Dave, Dave was that giant of a man. If he stood upright, he was probably this tall. But in these last years, he was a little bit more forward. And he sat in a wheelchair right in that back corner. A fixture in this church for a long time. And uh, the Lord took him home here a couple days ago. So in my years here, very often I would greet Dave before the service, and he would say, or he would ask me where my tie was, quite often. I think half-jokingly. And, and one Sunday he called me over and he put this tie in my hands. And I said, this clip-on tie, and I said, Dave, I promise you I'm going to wear it one Sunday. And uh, then I went to my office, and I put it in my shelf, and never thought of it since. And, uh, and then when he passed away this week, I went hunting for it, and sure enough, I found it up in my, my, uh, my cupboard there in my office, and uh, I think the funeral is, is it March 1st? Has that been confirmed? Tentative, okay. If, if it is around that time, then I'm out of town, and they know that, and um, I won't be here. I was going to, I would have worn it as his funeral service, but... Being that I probably won't be there, I'm going to wear this in Dave's honor. So, so uh, I'm putting on the tie. I promised Dave I was going to wear the tie at least once. How does it look? Right. Oh! There's a pokey thing in there. All right, Dave, this is for you. And so, Lord, we... Uh, we're here this morning because this is important. You're important, Lord. Um, there is nothing that we need more than we need you. And we're just reminded this morning as we think of a, a, a brother of ours who has left this world to be with you, we're just reminded that, that every day is a gift and that this life is just temporary and there's a day that's coming that every one of us, we're going to have to stand before you. And Lord, we want to be ready Lord, we want to know you. We want to be living for you. We want to be on mission. And so, Lord, we know that what's happening today is important. And um, you're here. You want to speak to us. So, Lord, as we open your word together, would you just speak your truth and your life into our lives? In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know that we've been going through the first chapters of Genesis together. Really important Chapters at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. The word Genesis is the Latin word that means beginnings or origins. And in these first chapters of the Bible, we really get the story of the beginning of everything. It, it, it addresses so many of the biggest questions of life that, that you have, that everybody you know has. Like, is there a God? If so, what is God like? Why is the world here? What does it mean to be a human being? How are we supposed to relate to God? How are we supposed to relate to one another? Why is there suffering in the world? Is there any hope for the world? All of these big questions are questions that are addressed in the first chapters of the Bible. So this is a really important chunk of Scripture we're going through together. And I, I trust we are and will be learning a lot. And this morning we're going to talk about the beginning of marriage. Oh, the Hugings are here. Sorry, I'm... ADHD. I'm like that squirrel. <laughs> uh, but when there's a new baby here for the first Sunday and I see it, I always recognize it. So 
congratulations. You have your little daughter, Parker Huging, Parker Kathleen Huging, first Sunday in church. We're happy for you guys. Congratulations. To you, Curtis and Kelsey. You guys are looking well. Sounds like you're doing well. That's awesome. Uh, so, this morning we're talking about the beginning of marriage. You know, if, if you've been reading Genesis chapter 1, which talks about God's creative act, how He made everything, you've heard God again and again say the words, it is good. He would make something and then He would look at it and at the end of that day of creation, He would look at it and say, it is good. And He says this over and over again. And so, we've become trained to kind of look at what God has made and to call it good. And so, I think it's almost purposefully kind of surprising when we come to this point in the story, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, when we hear the words, it is not good. Because to this point, everything's been good. But now we find, according to God, there is something that is not good. So in Genesis 2, 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so God made a woman. And, and that's a very famous statement. I will make a helper suitable for him. And, and some people have wondered kind of what that means and if almost that kind of connotes that, that somehow women were kind of an afterthought. You know, God made man and he thought he was done. But then, you know, man's kind of feeling a little bit lonely and he's not doing so well. And he says, God, could you help me out here? And God says, oh gosh, what can I do? Okay, I'm going to make a woman. As if the woman was a bit of an afterthought or maybe kind of a sidekick to the man, you know, Robin to Batman. Uh, maybe just an assistant to the boss. Adam being primary and Eve being secondary. And some people have wondered what these words actually mean. And it might, it might kind of help to understand those two words, suitable and helper, because that word suitable literally means according to his opposite or to that which is standing in front of him that is facing him, kind of like a mirror image. Have you ever like tried to find your gardening gloves or your winter gloves and you found one and you're looking for the other one and you find another glove but it's the same sand and you find another glove and you just keep finding like a whole bunch of right-handed gloves? Where is that left-handed? So, so this is kind of this picture, something that is like but different. Something that's almost like the mere opposite, the complementary, the matching pair, the left hand and the right hand, that which is correspondingly opposite to him. That's what this word literally means. Like him, but different from him. Sharing in man's nature, but supplying what he lacks is strong where he is weak. So God doesn't just clone another man. He makes a woman who is like and yet is different. He makes a helper. That word helper there in the Hebrew, the word is izer. Uh, literally it means, well, it means helper, but, but it's almost always used as a reference to God. God is almost always the izer in the Bible, the helper. So this is not a word that in and of itself has a, a sense of subordination or subservience. It, it, it's a word that connotes strength, someone who comes to help someone who is weak with strength, with something they lack, like God being our helper. And so we see, we see God making the woman for the man, someone who is equal but not interchangeable, has what he lacks. And so... God makes the woman, and the man discovers this woman after he comes from his sleep, according to the story, and what does he say? Wow! Yeah, that's what he said. No, it, it's kind of this expression of joy. It's, he's almost like astonished, right? Now this is bone of my, this is it, this is what I lack. This is, this is what I need. And so man and woman are made for one another and placed in a unique relationship called marriage. And in verse 24 and 25, we have this foundational text, which is, it is the founding of the institution of 
marriage. And over these next two weeks, we're going to look at it. We're going to look at those couple verses to try to just um, gain God's wisdom for this important relationship. These are the words that, that Jesus will come back to in Matthew chapter 19 when he's asked a question about marriage and divorce. Jesus comes back to these verses. In Paul, Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, in talking about, um, about the relationship between Christ and the church, he will come back to these verses. These are the foundational verses on marriage in the Bible that help us understand what is marriage. And isn't that a really important question that a lot of people are asking today? What is marriage? What is it? Like, is it, um, is it just a piece of paper? We don't need marriage. It's a piece of paper. Well, is it? Is it just a social construct? Just something that developed in society for one reason or another, maybe even for bad reasons, you know, so that men could control and subjugate women? Or it's just an outmoded tradition that in our day and age just doesn't really, we don't need anymore. What is it? Many people don't really know, or they don't think it's important, they're giving up on it. So the, you know, the rate of people that are marrying... um, Obviously, in our society, is going down and down quite drastically. People have stopped believing in marriage. What is marriage? Well, what I want to do is just kind of share our church's definition of marriage. This is in our statement of faith. And so this is how we've defined it, coming from this text and with others in the Scriptures. We believe that marriage has been instituted by God and is His gift to society whereby a naturally born man and a naturally born woman are joined together in lifelong commitment to faithful companionship. We believe that marriage is the only proper context for sexual relations. Okay, so, so if you wonder, what does New Life Church believe about marriage? Well, there, that's it. I mean, you, you, could, you could preach a whole sermon on probably every word or clause in that, in that statement. There, there, there's so much there uh, to unpack. God made Uh, Marriage. We believe marriage has been instituted by God. That's where it all starts. God made marriage. What we see here in the story is that um, marriage was not mankind's idea, right? Adam did not initiate it. He he wasn't doing his thing and he said, boy, I feel like I'm missing something. God, is there something more? And God goes, well, let me think. Um, well, take a look at the animals. And he takes a look at the animals. No, nothing there. Oh, okay, geez. I'll see what I can do. No, man does not initiate. He doesn't come to God and say, God, you got to do something. I feel alone. God does not even consult man. He says, like, how are you doing? Do you need anybody? Do you need anything else? Do you need anyone else? If I made someone else for you, what would you think of that? No, God does not consult man. This is completely the initiative of God. And we even see this with the way that the, the, the creation of the woman is described. Like, God puts the man to sleep. Why? Maybe because a rib, rib is, you know, painful, and so that there's anesthetic there, and he has to be put under for that. But, but yet we see this at various points in the Scriptures, like when God makes a covenant with Abraham, when he makes a covenant, he actually puts Abraham to sleep. And, and I, there's something more here. What, what, what this means is that this is completely the initiative of God. This is not something that Adam is contributing to it. This is not his wisdom. This is not his plan. This is not his idea. This is God's idea. This is his doing. Wisdom or, or marriage is the wisdom of God. And that's what we have to understand first and foremost. Marriage is God's idea. So to understand it, we have to go to him. And, 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 you know, the society and governments, they might try to define or redefine what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman or what marriage is, but ultimately they can't. They can't. And they have no right because God is the one who made man and woman and marriage, and He's the one who has wisdom in it for us. And even if we don't fully understand at any point why, we know who. And God's wisdom is above our wisdom. So God made marriage. And what I was going to do this morning is I was going to take a few minutes and I was just going to kind of maybe unpack God's, that definition a little bit. You know, why two, you know, why a man and a woman instead of two men or two women? Uh, why lifelong instead of something that's just a contract that you can choose to renew every year? 
Why, why sex just within the bounds of the marriage relationship and not outside? But, you know, this week, I actually had, what was it, three separate conversations with people in this church that had just confided in me uh, how, how much they were struggling in marriage. And, and, and this has just been something I've been hearing more and more of lately. Um, there's a lot of people that are having a tough time in marriage. And, and so midweek, I thought, you know, we're going to do something a little bit different with these verses. Instead of trying to unpack that kind of definition and try to make a biblical case for, for the wisdom of God in that, let's take a look at the wisdom of God in marriage and how we are to be married to one another, how do we are to relate to one another in marriage. Because I think these couple of verses here, um, verses 24 and 25, give us a lot of wisdom. And I think there's something for here, whether you're married or whether you're not married, but might someday be married, I think there's a lot of wisdom here for all of us this morning in these words. And so uh, I want to read verses 24 and 25 again, and then I want us, us to see in here four, I was going to call them principles, but I think I'm going to call them laws. Because principle is kind of like a nice fuzzy word, like it kind of works most of the time, but you know, you know, it's maybe just a general idea. Whereas the law is kind of cut and dry, like the law of gravity works 100% of the time, you drop an apple, it falls. It's a law. If you do this, that happens. It's a law. And I actually think that what we have here, there are, there are laws for marriage. If, a, if two people in a marriage will both follow the laws of marriage, they will have a successful marriage. I believe that. If two people will practice the laws of marriage, followed by God's design, there's no reason they cannot have a healthy marriage. So, verses 24 and 25 in Genesis 2. Uh, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. All right. In those two verses, I just want us to, to see kind of maybe four ideas here, four laws, as I'll call them. And the first is the law of priority. God begins by saying, for this reason, a man, what? Leaves. Leaves his father and mother. When you hear that, what do you think of? You maybe have a picture of a, of a, of a guy with a suitcase and the parents kind of kicking him out, going, okay, go now. Go. Uh, are you sure? Go. And actually going and, and, may, and maybe living down the street or in the same community or in a different province. We kind of think of it in spatial terms. A change of physical location. But this is not, he's not talking about a change in location. He's talking about a change in loyalties, okay? Because culturally, the man did not leave his parents' house, right? If you look at eight, the stories that come... You know, in Jewish culture, the man was married to his wife, and she came and she joined him in his parents' home, right? In kind of the family compound. So they didn't practice the husband kind of actually physically leaving. So this, this isn't so much spatial, or uh, this, this is really talking about, again, loyalties. And some, some of your versions maybe get to that, because maybe um, if you got one of those old-timey versions, what does it say? Does it say forsake in your Bible? The one will not forsake. Maybe that gets at it a little bit more. That, that's a covenant word. And see, the words of covenant are, are, are dripping in this statement here. Right? This, this was the same word when, when, peop, when, when, when people, to, to follow the one true God, they had, to, they had to get rid of their other idols, the other things that they worshipped. Right? They had to forsake them for the sake of God. This is that same word here. It's about a changing of allegiances, loyalties, priorities. What God is saying is that when a husband and wife are married, they actually form something new. They form a new unit. They are a new family. There is a reordering now of priorities. And so now after a relationship with God, which is always primary, your relationship with your spouse is the next most important person in relationship in your life. And, and, and your family of origin, they get knocked down a notch. There's a new number one that you devote the best of your time and the best of your attention to, your spouse. You know, some people, they have left their, their mother and their father physically, but they haven't left psychologically. 
And, and that can be hard, especially when you're new in marriage. I know there's some people who are engaged in the room. I hope you're listening, taking notes. Because um, I remember Erica and I, right, having to leave, having to figure out. We, we both came with sets of Christmas traditions. What are we going to do? Well, we open our gifts on Saturday night or on Christmas Eve night, and she opened her gifts on, on Sunday morning. And, and so we, we both entered the relationship with our own traditions, our own values that were formed in our families, our own expectations of what it looked like to be a husband or a wife or to have kids or to use money or leisure time or whatever else. My, I grew up in a pastor's home. My dad is a pastor. My mom was a pastor's wife. I'm now a pastor. I'm married to a pastor's wife. Does that work? I'm just trying to think that through. It'd be really weird if I was married to someone who wasn't a pastor's wife. That would be... But, you know, then having to figure out, okay, like, um, well, th- growing up, this is, this, is what it, like, this is what my mom was like. She was a pastor's wife, right? And, and, and it's so easy just to kind of bring maybe unassumed expectations or things and try to bring them into yours. And, and what he's saying is here, psychologically, you have to leave that behind. You're a new unit, you have to create new patterns of life that fit your context, not the home you came from, not mother and father, to fit your context. Now, your spouse is, number one, they are your priority. And anything that usurps that marital priority is an idol, right? It harms the relationship. And idols are usually good things, right? They're not usually bad things. They're, they're normally good things out of their proper priority, right? And, and in marriage, what, what can usurp the priority of marriage? Well, well, children can and often do, which is why often when people get to the point where the kids are gone, what do they do? They look at one another and go across the table and go, who are you? Do I still want to be with you? Do I know you? I don't know. And then they go separate ways. And that's becoming increasingly common. Why? Because so much time and energy was devoted to other places, but not to one another. And and very often, if there's kids, it's the kids. And studies have shown that marital happiness goes down when kids arrive. It doesn't have to be, but often is. Because they can so easily become the priority, the suck of all time and all attention. And, and I remember someone told me once, and I, I thought it comes to me time, you know, from time to time, that the greatest gift you can give your children is a strong marriage. Your, ki- your kids don't need all of you. Your kids need their mother loving their father. And need, they need their father loving their mother. That's what your kids need. More than, another, more than another trip to Disney, more than another, you know, activity that they get run to on another evening of the week. So if you're going to make that a priority, then you really have to carve that out. And so what I did actually in the middle of the week is I emailed about six or seven seasoned married couples in this church that I thought, you know, they seem to have done pretty well and learned some things along the way. And I asked them for some, for some advice So some of them emailed back to me. One said, you need to continue to date and spend time together as a couple, especially couples with children, so that when children leave the home, you still have a close relationship. Don't neglect one another. Give the best of your time and your attention to your spouse. This is the law of priority. And sometimes that means you have to carve it out. You got to put it on the calendar because it won't just happen naturally. You have to choose the priority. So that's the law of the prior. The second one here, after we leave, is, is the law of pursuit, let's call it. Now, my version says that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. That word united probably isn't a very good word there, translation. Does someone else have another word? Is that cleave? Yeah. Yeah. Is that join? Yeah. Cleave, join, hold fast. So cleave is probably, meant, that might be like a King James version sort of word. Like when I think of cleave, I think of like a meat cleaver. Like, Bleh. get chopped up into pieces and marriage. Um, what is, but, but what does cleave mean? This is another covenant word, okay? This is a word that means to hold fast to, to cling to. Yeah, to, to hold on tight. You know, like when your kid wraps their body around your leg and you try to shake them off. 
And you cannot get them off because they are cleaving. They're clinging. This is this word, right? And, the, and, and, and three times in, in the book of Deuteronomy, God calls His people to cleave to Him, to cling to Him. It means devoting, just kind of per, like investing all of your energy in the other, right? It's this kind of pursuing of and waking up each morning and deciding to put in the effort and renewing and making the decision all over again to give yourself and to serve. Marriage requires ongoing effort. A lot of people get lazy in marriage. At the beginning, you start really intentional, right? Asking questions, going out of your way to get little gifts. And even as I'm preaching this, I'm like, I'm digging my own grave here. My wife is right here, and she's going to remind me what I said in this sermon. And um, studies have shown that the, the first year of marriage is the happiest year of marriage in the average marriage. Isn't that depressing, that, that idea? Like, you'd think something that you do more and more, you'd get better at, it would become more satisfying, and for many it does, and it certainly can, right? But, but we, we, we get into something, and then it's so easy to get lazy in it. Roseanne Barr, that famous actress, she, she uh, defined a man as a recliner who burps. And I thought, <laughs> maybe that'd be far off. But just this idea of kind of um, passivity, Laziness in a lack, a lack of intentionality and a lack of effort, right? Marriage requires ongoing effort, and that surprises some people because, um, you know, so there, I think there's this lie out there that says if I marry the right person, then these, this love and these feelings would come naturally. And if they don't, it's because I married the wrong person. I feel differently now. And, or, or, or the marriage is, is broken. And that's not true. It just means that marriage requires work. It requires ongoing investment and input. It requires a constant pursuing to seek the other, to serve the other, to know the other. So some people, they think that, you know, that, that being joined together just means staying and not leaving. And that's not what it means. It just doesn't mean just choosing to stay. It means striving. It means pursuing to continue to better know and to better serve the other. The law of pursuit. The, the third one here we might call the law of possession. It goes on to say, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they will become one flesh. So when God wanted to use a word to describe these two people coming together, the, the best word he could find was the word one. One. The two have become one. There's, there's, this, there's this union. There's a sense in which these two cannot be considered two anymore. Not that they've completely lost themselves or any individuality within themselves, but you cannot now think of one without the other. You cannot consider one without considering the other. And even though it talks about one flesh, and so I think it's, it's kind of conjuring up, obviously, the sexual union, the two bodies coming together, which is maybe kind of the most, you know, the intimate act of sharing one another. It's meant to express and to consolidate this kind of this wider oneness, which is why in the Bible the word that's often, you know, that describes sexual relations is, is the word yada, which means to know. And Adam knew his wife. Well, isn't that a prudish way of talking about sex, right? No, that's, it's giving us a deeper meaning of what the purpose of that is. It's not just about the physical act, physical pleasure. It's, it's about a knowing it's, a, it's, it's not just about a physical, but about an, an emotional intimacy there. It's, a, it's about really knowing and sharing with the other in body, mind, and spirit. So I think when it says the two shall become one, God has in mind here in marriage that everything you share, you share in common. It's not 50%, 50%, it's both 100%. If it's 50%, 50%, then you just kind of get... Then, then, then it's like scorekeeping, right? Then you become competitors, always measuring. But if it's 100% and 100% and we both own 100%, then it's like we're not competitors, we're teammates. We're partners. Everything we have belongs to each other. Now, now that doesn't mean that we're called to be possessive because there are spouses that are possessive and that's not right, Right? The law of possession is not being possessive, which can happen in a couple of different ways, it, by being domineering and demanding and taking from the other, 
right? Taking all of their time, demanding all of their time, demanding to know where they are at every minute, demanding to know every penny they've spent, demanding that every relationship they have, they have to share in common. Every friend has to be friends with both of us, that we don't have things that we do apart. Like that's possessiveness, but, but that's not what he means here when he means to be one, to share in common. That, 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 that does have this idea of taking. The other way of being possessive would be, would be keeping, right? Not, not taking from the other, but keeping from the other. A withholding from the other and saying, this part of my life you have no right to speak into because this isn't yours, this is just mine. But you can't say that in marriage because in marriage we both bring all of ourselves and we both share all of ourselves. Marriage is not um, taking from the other or keeping from the other. Marriage is self-giving. Two people self-giving in this mutuality. And so this is kind of very starkly described by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, when he says, The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. He's not saying one takes from the other. He's saying that in marriage, what it is, it's a sharing everything in common. There's a oneness where, where you yield to one another. You, you, both are, you both have this mutuality where you are giving to each other. Not keeping away from or not taking from. Not, not mine or yours, but ours. And when things kind of get rough, we can, we, can, we can get into mine or yours, right? Whenever the kids are misbehaving, whose kids are they? They're your kids, right? They're not our kids. Look what your kids are doing. Another piece of advice someone here emailed in was, they said, respect each other, say and do nice things for, uh, to and for each other. Ne- never stop saying and doing nice things. Um, they also said, take, take time to make family decisions together, yet give each other time to do their favorite hobby on their own. This was kind of a theme I I felt was interesting from the advice I got from some of you. Someone else said, trust your partner. Give them freedom. Don't suffocate them. Then they put in brackets, we understand that there are partners who are not trustworthy. Let them have independence to pursue their own interests. Right? So you make decisions together. You share everything in common. But but, but then you, you also give permission to one another to have their own time, to have their own interests, to have their own hobbies, to be their own person. Right? But that doesn't mean you, you, you are not one. You still, you still bring everything and share everything in common together. The law of possession. Not to take from the other, not to keep from the other, but to give to the other. So, so the fourth and final one I, I see here is, we'll just call it the law of purity. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and Eve, or sorry, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So you can imagine this. I mean, don't imagine too hard, right? Let's give it PG. But uh, there's the first man and the first woman and they're standing in front of one and are like buck naked. Don't look at me. This is going off the rails. Um, they were, and, and, and they, uh, there was no shame. And, and I don't think this is just, yeah, this, this is a reference to like a complete acceptance of one another physically, but I think it's more than that, right? Um, this is a description of um, authenticity, the ability to be who you are and to be accepted um, and loved as you are free of guilt, shame, and fear. Of course, we, don't, we know how the story goes. It didn't last long, right? The next chapter, uh, the first man and the first woman, they disobey God, they deny His wisdom, and they think they know better, so then they do it their way. And it says once they, when they sinned, their eyes were opened, and they realized that they were naked. And what did they do? They took fig leaves, and they sewed them together to cover themselves. And, and what, what parts of them do you think they covered? Maybe their knees? Kneecaps? Maybe if you came from one of those older Mennonite backgrounds, it might be the kneecaps. 
um, elbows, the right shoulder. Well, it doesn't say like where they put the fig leaves, um, but we, we've, see, we've seen visual depictions of that. Typically, it's what? It's like the idea here is they covered up the private bits, right? The private parts. They covered up the parts that were different from the other person, right? As, as soon as there was this sin entered the world, there was this break, um, they hid from each other the parts of each other that were different from one another. Because there was this shame about the difference, and maybe there was this kind of attitude of judgment about those things in one another that were different from each other. And I think this is what often happens, and I've seen this, you know, in, in, in kind of my own experience of marriage, right? If we feel unsafe to be kind of true, authentic about our feelings, our dreams, our body, yeah, our body, what do we do? We hide it from the other. We hide it from, we're not sure that we can trust the other with that. And so, so we, we, we retreat and we hide. Like I said, I've, I've seen that dynamic in my marriage, right? Where, where Eric and I at times have put on fig leaves and um, we're, we, we realize very quick in marriage that we have different money languages. Money means different things to us. We're, dif- we're different, in, in, different in, in a bunch of ways, Right? as you are with your spouse if you're married, or will be if you're married someday. So for me, money means security. The thing that would make me happiest would be the save. For Erica, it's not security. It's love. She isn't, she, she, she isn't, she's not out buying Gucci handbags. She doesn't care about that. But, but she likes to you know, use money to um, bless people and to buy gifts. And because money means love. To me, it means security. And so we found ourselves, I mean, if I'm going to be honest, it's probably be me judging her more about that difference and, and, and kind of seeing the other, the difference as a weakness instead of maybe a strength that was complementary to mine. I saw the difference as something to be critiqued, maybe something to be condemned. And so early on in marriage, and that's never fully gone away, we still deal with that, but, but that... Um, kind of dealing with that, that tension there. And, and sometimes when I've been harsh with kind of spending money on this, I, I might find out my, myself in a place where I'm going through my statement and, and I see something there and I ask her about it and I go, what, what's that? Oh, it was this. You know, just something very normal. Yeah, we needed this in the house. But I, I thought you might be mad. Mm. Because... She'd had to put on some fig leaves there. So for us, that's an example of that in our relationship. So I'm just talking firsthand here. I don't know what it is in your relationship. Sometimes when my wife would kind of share her own hurts, her wounds, whether they came from me or somewhere else, I, I, would, uh, I would try to tell her why her feelings were illegitimate, why she ought not to feel that way. Well, that's not true. Right? She shouldn't be hurt. And that just, what does that do? I'm not safe. I can't, I can't be naked. So on go the fig leaves, the distance. She might share her dreams with me, and I might show her why those dreams, as, as great as they might be, aren't really realistic. Like one of them was to become a counselor and opening a counseling center. Nah. That never happened. Yeah, it did. Uh, she would share her emotions. Um, and, and, right, my natural inclination was to go into a fix-it mode. Guys, aren't we terrible at this, generally? I think we're probably worse at this than, than the women. Um, she, she would just kind of bear her heart, some, something she was carrying, and, and I, immediately I would try to like make it better. And what would she say? I don't need you to make, I just need you to listen. I just need you to listen. I just need you to understand. I just need you to tell me it's going to be okay. I just need to tell me, you, I, just need to, I, just, I just need to be naked. That I'm loved and accepted in spite of this. That it doesn't have to change. It don't have to be fixed. And I've, I've had to learn how to, how to just listen and accept and care, and not try to immediately go into fix-it mode. 
There are all sorts of ways that we can put on fig leaves, right, to cover ourselves. Uh, but God's intention is in marriage is that the man and the woman would stand one another emotionally, physically, naked in front of one another and feel no shame. To be completely authentic and be loved and accepted as they are. And so I remember someone saying once that every marriage needs a really good customer service desk, a really good complaint department, where if your spouse has to bring back a shirt they bought from you that didn't fit quite right, they don't get shut down, criticized, but, but you gladly take that shirt back and, and, and ask them how you, can, you know, how you can give them a better one. Law of purity. So, so, so these are these four, kind of four insights I mean, I take from these verses. And so maybe there's something in there that you need to take away that kind of triggers some thoughts um, or some areas in your own life that could use a little bit of attention. The law of priority, the law of pursuit, the law of possession, the law of purity. One last piece of advice I thought was kind of interesting. I think it came from Betty Ann. She said, before we go to sleep, Alan prays and then I pray. And we strongly recommend this practice for married couples because it's very hard to be mad at your mate if you, uh, if you know you're going to be praying with them and for them. Pray with one another every day. And you know, I read a, a study a while back. It, it seems too good to be true. I don't know that I believe it. But it, it, I guess it, it's a study that said uh, a husband and wife that pray together for one another every day have a divorce rate of one in 1,000. That seems almost too good to be true, but there's obviously something there, right? When, when, there, when there's kind of that spiritual, you know, when we come and there's an openness to be able to talk, to, 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 to really be listened to, to be heard, not to be shut down, where you can really take off those fig leaves and be yourself, be emotionally, physically naked in front of the other, right? That's the, that, that's part of the recipe for health and happiness in marriage, are there any fig leaves if you're married that you've kind of um, caused your spouse to have to put on? So we could stop there. I mean, it's 11.55. Um, but I want us to see something just a little bit more in marriage. You know, to, because marriage isn't just about two people. It's not just about a husband and a wife. To properly understand marriage, we have to understand that it's not just a story that's in the Bible, but marriage is a story, is the story of the Bible. Did you know that? Marriage is the story of the whole Bible. This is why Paul, when um, uh, he's describing, well, just I'll let him say it. Ephesians 5, verses 21 to 33. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He's talking to husbands and wives. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body for which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to your husbands in everything. And we'll be talking a bit more about this passage next week. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of the water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love... In the same way as what? In the same way, husbands, you ought to love your wives. In the same way as what? As Christ loved the church. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, laid down his life, for her, for us. And then, he, and then he quotes that passage from Genesis chapter 2. He says in, in Ephesians 5.31, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he says, This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. He's saying, mystery is a marriage. Up, up until Christ, we just thought it was between a man and a woman, but now in Christ we see marriage is so much more than that. God's design and God's wisdom in marriage was so much more than just a husband and a wife coming together and helping one another and being happy and maybe having a few kids and perpetuating the human race. So much more than that. From, from the very beginning, God's design in marriage was that marriage would be God's chosen picture of His covenant-keeping love for His church. It is God's picture like, like, like the moon reflecting the light of the sun onto the earth. 
It doesn't have light of its own. It just reflects the light of the greater light that's hidden behind the earth. It reflects it down for others to see the light. He says, so is marriage. It's not that Paul was just looking for an example. What's like Christ in the church? What's kind of like that? Uh, master, slave, no, no kid, parent, no, what is that, sports team, no, what's that? Yeah, husband and wife. It's kind of, it's kind of like husband. It's kind of like marriage. That's not what it... He's not just saying, oh, here's something it's kind of like. What he's saying is, this is what marriage means. And it's always mean that. And we now fully understand God's design for it in Christ. It is a picture, a divine picture of His covenant-keeping love for His people. Man, that's marriage. That's its deeper meaning. That's what makes it so holy, so unique. And so you see throughout the Bible that, that, that this relationship between God and His people, Old Testament, New, New Testament, he, he, uses, he uses marriage. Marriage is the metaphor, right? So you have Song of Songs. Anyone want me to preach a sermon series through Song of Songs? You do, John? All right. No one else is brave enough to raise their hand. He's like, I'd like to hear it. That's, that's a racy book. That's a book about physical, emotional intimacy between a husband and a wife, or is it? Or is it between God and His people? Or is it both? It's both because it's not one or the other. It's like one marriage is a copy of the kingdom of God. It's a copy of the relationship between Christ and His church. The church is called the bride of Christ. Jesus calls Himself the the. the groom, and at the very end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 19, this vision that God gives John about the end of time, when, when, when Jesus comes and God's kingdom is fully and finally established for all eternity, it describes that like a wedding, right? It says, let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory for the wedding of the Lamb, that is Jesus, has come and His bride has made herself ready. And then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Right? So when we're united together, what is it? It's a wedding. This is a marriage. It's, it's this sort of love and intimacy that we have with God. That, that's what we're created for. That's what we're, that, that's what we're destined for. That's what we already participate in and now in part. And so the very last verses of the Bible, Revelation 22, final verses, it says, the spirit and the bride say, come. That is, come, Lord Jesus. The spirit and the bride. This is the bride. We're the bride. Right? So all that to say marriage, the marriage covenant is this picture of this greater covenant. And, and you know, so that means marriage is an opportunity to preach in the way that you love the other, the way that you care for the other. It's way bigger than just the other. You are preaching to the world the truth of the covenant-keeping love of God by the way that you do marriage, by the way you love your spouse through good and through bad. Every challenge then becomes an opportunity to show the covenant-keeping love of God. And this is why Jesus said there is no marriage in heaven. Some of you will be like, hallelujah. Right? Jesus was asked, this woman had seven husbands. They all died. I don't know what she put in in the Kool-Aid, but um, whose husband is she going to be in heaven? Jesus. And he says, you don't get it. There is no marriage or giving in marriage in heaven. Marriage is for this life alone because when, when when you're united with God fully in the kingdom, um, marriage ceases to have any, any meaning anymore because the real thing has come. Just like when the sun rises, the moon disappears. You don't need the moon anymore. The sun has risen. The real thing, the greater thing, the greater love, the greater intimacy, the greater relationship is here, and so marriage disappears. It's for a time. What it is, is it's a vehicle. Yeah, it's a vehicle for companionship. It's a vehicle for children, but it's a vehicle, more than that, to display the love of God to a world that needs to see it. Yeah, it's important. It's important. And um, that has a bunch of implications. If you think of marriage that way, that has implications, right, in how you live. Um, if you see marriage, human marriage finds its fulfillment in Christ, I mean, just a couple in implications. One is that, that would give significance to singleness because some of you here, you're single. Maybe you don't want to be. Maybe you do want to be. Maybe you'd rather be married, but you're not. You're single. Maybe you're widowed, maybe you're divorced. 
But, but, if, but if the marriage love is just a copy of the higher love, the higher fulfillment in Christ, that gives significance to singleness. You know, Jesus as a single man and Paul as, as, as a single man. Um, what that means is you are not incomplete without marriage because if you just stuck in, in Genesis chapter 2, it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for the woman to be alone. Well, I guess what that means, if, if I'm not with somebody, then I'm incomplete. I'm missing out. But, but if marriage is just a copy of this greater love, this greater intimacy with God, that, that, that gives significance to singleness. Even if you might be married in the future, it doesn't mean it's, it's just about waiting. You're not incomplete. Every Christian is married or engaged to be married. If we find ourselves to be single, if that's you, and wishing to be married, uh, you've got to rely on the spousal love of Christ. And obviously, find spiritual community with, with others but relying on the spousal love of Christ because he's the only one who will ever truly complete you. No spouse will. So it gives significance to singleness. It means it's essential, secondly, to be equally yoked. You ever heard that term, equally yoked? It comes from a, a verse in 2 Corinthians, I believe it is, 6.4, when Paul says, he's not talking about marriage specifically, he's just talking about kind of, he's talking about partnering with, with, in, in certain relationships with people. Being, being, he says, don't be yoked. If you're a believer, don't be yoked with an unbeliever. A yoke was a, you know, an agricultural thing. It was that bar that was tied on the back of like around the neck of two oxen and they pulled in different directions. He's like, be careful who you tie yourself to because if you're pulling in that direction, that's where you're going and, 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 and you get yoked to someone who's going in that direction, life's going to be hard. It's going to be hard for that person. It's going to be hard for you. What you need to do is you need to find, you, you, you need to yoke yourself with people that are going in the same direction that have the same understanding of what life is all about, the same, the same purpose for living, the, the same goal, right? And so he's, don't be unequally yoked. What that means for us in marriage is if you're single and you're looking for somebody, you need to, um, you need, you need to make sure that you are looking for someone that you're spiritually united with. That's really important. That's really important because it's not just about the two of you. It's, it's more than the, just, just the two. It's about this greater meaning and this greater mission. And so um, for those youngins here, just don't missionary date. Don't think you're just going to find someone you like and then, you know, if you pray for them hard enough and bring them to church, then they'll just be who they need to be. Uh, thirdly, there is grace for the sinner. There is grace for the sinner. What is sin? Sin is falling short of God's glory. We're all sinners here, I think. And whether you're, whether you're married and even happily married, you're, you're still a sinner in marriage. But some of you, you've experienced the exceptional brokenness in relationships. You know, maybe you're someone who's been married and, it, and, and that's been broken for one reason or another. And maybe if you're honest, it's because of bad decisions you made. Um, you know, m maybe you're living as if you were married but not being married. Um, and, and, and you, you, might, you might look back and you might look at that, that definition of marriage and going, man, I, I have not lived that way. I've not fallen short. I, I've fallen short of that. I mean, if human marriage is a fulfillment of um, the, the or, or finds its fulfillment in the gospel and in the grace of Jesus Christ, that means there's grace for the sinner. That means it doesn't matter what you've done. You can be forgiven. You can be restored. You can be made new. That's what that means, Right? Marriage isn't the highest thing. And if you broke at that, if you failed at that, well, that's it. No, no, there's something higher yet, something more powerful. The, 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 the love and the grace of God. And so I just want you to know that because there, there's people here that maybe they feel a real burden or, or, or a guilt or a sadness about the past in that. There is grace for sinners where we have fallen short of God's intention we can be forgiven, we should acknowledge that, we should confess, and then we should seek to obey in the present. So there might be people in the room like, you, you, you need to make some changes to be in alignment with the will of God for relationships, for sex, for marriage. I mean, if you're gonna, if you're gonna walk in faithfulness and obedience to the God of the universe, the God who is, this, is, is the savior of your soul, the God who is perfectly wise, then, 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 then you might really have to consider making changes in a relationship or in your life in some way to, to, obey, um, to obey in the future, to obey today and tomorrow. I mean, we can ask God for forgiveness for the sins of the past, but we shouldn't be people that ask God for the forgiveness of the sins we're still going to plan to commit tomorrow. 
right? We should desire to be faithful, but there is grace for the sinner when we fall short. And then lastly, and this is it, I promise, growing spiritually will help you grow spousally. Growing spiritually will help you grow spousally. Um, you know, becoming a godlier person is going to help you become a better husband and a better wife, whether now or in the future. As you pursue Christ, you are shaped by His love, by His Word, His Spirit. As you find those deeper needs met in Him, the needs of, of significance, the needs of security, joy, meaning, if you find those met, met in, in God, right, then, then you are equipped in your marriage just, just to contribute towards a healthier marriage, to love better, to serve better, right? So growing spiritually will help you grow spousally. So for some of you, it's not just, I need to get better, I need to get better in marriage. It's like, you might just need to look, look to God and you might just as a person, as a man or as a woman, you need just to kind of, what can you do to, to, to seek spiritual growth so that you can be shaped, become the kind of person that in your marriage contributes towards health? What could that look like? And if you're here that someone who's single right now, that means that you're, the, the, the success of your future marriage begins now, young people. I see some of you. Some of you are right there. And not just young people. Some of you, you're not married now. You're going to be married someday, right? And the preparation for being successful in marriage doesn't begin when you get married. It begins today, right? In, in growing more godly, in your knowledge, in your attitudes, in your actions, so that day when you step in to become a husband or wife, you are, you are better prepared, right, to, to, to love as God loves because you know the love of God and He has shaped you because there are some people that think that marriage will solve their problems. When I get married, that, that'll go away. It doesn't. I learned that the hard way. You just bring your problems into your marriage. Marriage does not solve any of your problems. Now's the time. Now's the time to work in pursuing Christ, pursuing holiness for the sake of any marriage you're in now and any marriage you'll be in in the future. So I'm done. Marriage love is a copy of the higher love, God's love, and that's why Satan hates it. That's why he seeks to destroy it, right? And that's why we must treasure it. We must promote it. We must believe in it. Because marriage isn't just a story at the beginning of the Bible, it is the story of the Bible. So here's the question as we close. Whether you are married or unmarried today, how is God putting, uh, or how is God speaking to you about putting His Word into practice? So when I get up here every time, I guess I just believe, I believe that when we open the Bible, God is actually speaking to people. And He might be laying something on your heart, bringing something to your mind. So that's the question for you to consider and, and to take home if you like. With what you've just heard here, whether you're married or whether you're unmarried, how can you put His Word into practice with the help of His Spirit? Let's just come to God in prayer and ask Him that question. The worship team will come and lead us in the final song. Let's pray. God, speak to us. There's a bunch of married people in the room right now. Even right now, God, would you just be laying on their minds and their hearts something that you want them to take away and bring back into their home and into their marriage? And uh, for anyone, God, who's not married here right now, um, or just remind them of your incredible love for them. In you they lack nothing. And just show them, God, what you would have them do with your word today. And so, God, yeah, we, we are your people, those of us who have believed in your Son, um, have received your grace, have received your spirit, have been brought into your family, um, have become a part of the bride of Christ. Lord, we just thank you for this incredible love, this covenant that we share with you. And um, Lord, we just can't even fathom the depth of your love for us, how high and wide and long and deep it is. 
So would you just give us the power to grasp in, in just a fuller sense, Lord, how, how big it is. Lord, and that would just encourage us and inspire us to go back to our homes, to our spouses, um, to our families, and um, just be ready and willing to um, give your love away to others around us. Lord, for any marriages that are struggling right now in the room, would you, uh, would you just speak a hope to them, speak courage to them, uh, humility, Lord, um, and just might they know that um, there is help and there is hope. And for anyone that needs to kind of speak up and reach out, I just pray that you would give them the courage to do that. All this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.